I think it's important for my clients and any any stakeholders that I talk to, Ravi, it's it's also it's important to understand, you know what, this person that I'm dealing with, what drives them, right? Why are they doing this? And what I've always told all my clients, even my family and my coworkers, is you've heard the old story of if you give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day, right? But if you teach a man how to fish, then he'll eat for life. What's up, Sal? Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Ravi. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Uh, I feel like we've talked so much about this podcast. You have, uh, and uh, now this is the first time you know we have to get you on here. We we've only had like a few people from like large enterprises on this podcast, mostly because our our guests are founders. They go out and start yeah. companies. But mm-hmm. one of the things I enjoy talking to executives is that they see a different reality. Right. Like um, they see, you know, by by the scope of your work, working with different clients, you get to see a lot of different industries, maybe uh, across the various geographies. You get to learn uh, uh, across a wider basis. And mm-hmm. oftentimes the best founders are those who worked in a particular field industry, learned it inside out and mm-hmm. find a niche for themselves that they can. Uh, that, that, that it's obvious for them, not obvious for everyone else. And, and kind of absolutely. So I want to talk to you about uh, innovation and what you see. Because uh, you talk mm-hmm. uh, to a lot of companies through Rico and you work there. Um, mm-hmm. So can you jump us in? Uh, can you talk about the nature of your work? Yeah, um, I guess I'll start with a brief blurb about myself. Uh, uh, my name is Sal. Um, you know, uh, born and raised in Canada, lived all over the states in Canada. So my background, I think, kind of lend it, lends itself to where I ended up. Uh, I've been an artist since I was a child. I was uh, kind of scribbling my inner Picasso on my parents' walls in a condo in L.A. back in the early 80s, getting plenty of trouble for it. Um, and then I think kind of just growing up, uh, I, I had this knack for just fixing technology, you know, uh, whether it was the family TV, the radio, the fridge, the car, whatever. Uh, so I kind of fell into actually uh, IT engineering initially, straight out of high school in the 90s. And I went to college for that. Uh, and I was working on Cisco routers, Microsoft servers way back in the late 90s. And then um, came back to Canada. That was in the States, by the way. And then came back to Canada in the early 2000s and just purely accident. I was working at Bell Canada and ended up in business development. Uh, so what I like to, you know, when I talk to my clients, uh, one of the things that they've in the past that they've liked is, uh, hey, Sal, we don't get any technical jargon from you. And it's it's by design. You know, I'm, I'm kind of mindful of which audience I'm talking to. So um, here at Rico, what I do is I'm handling business development for Ontario and Quebec for startups, entrepreneurs, small and medium businesses. Uh, it, it includes several startups, I think, that you've kind of funneled my way that you've mentioned, hey, Sal might be a great contact for you to talk to. And obviously, there's other startups that I've run across through other different venues as well. Uh, Rico itself, uh, I think uh, some of your older listeners might recall Rico uh, in the print space. Uh, we do compete with Xerox and HP directly globally. Uh, but we've got lots of different exciting divisions. And one of the ones that I work in is Rico IT Services. So we're all about seeing what can we do to help drive more value out of your technology use or whatever your technology strategy is, Mr. Customer. So. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about Rico? Because um, Rico is a multinational that has a lot of different things, known best for its printers. Uh, and this is yeah. the confusing part about when, when you uh, explain about this, right? It's like these large behemoth mm. companies 
have so much things going on. How would you describe a company like Rico to outsiders? Rico, um, you know, I got to say, uh, ever since I, I came to Rico, the one thing that I definitely noticed, Ravi, which I like, is definitely its culture. Um, and it's very distinct from other North American companies that I've worked for. So I'll give you some insight. Uh, as an example, Rico Canada specifically is very mindful of its relations with the Native Americans. Uh, and they've been so for a while uh, at the highest levels, right up to the CEO of Rico Canada. Um, their culture is just amazing. They genuinely, I believe, they focus on uh, the people, you know, the communities that they're operating in, those kinds of relationships. They're not purely focused on, hey, what are the quarterly numbers looking like? What are the annual numbers looking like, right? Uh, so that's one thing I love about Rico to start off with. The secondly, I would say it's a technology company, and they're focused on helping you, the customer, you know, manage manage your data in a manner that is most efficient for your business. So that data could include, you know, uh, what we're known traditionally for is print, anything related to imaging and print. Um, we do have a large division that manufactures, for example, camera lenses. Uh, Nikon and Canon are major customers of ours there. And in fact, I do talk to some startups who are a little bit older, perhaps, you know, they're in their 40s and 50s. And when I talk to them, they're like, oh, Rico, don't you guys do camera lenses? And I have to chuckle a little bit. And I'm like, well, we do that. Yes. So we do print. And they're like, oh, yeah, I remember that, too. And I'm like, here's all the other divisions that we do. Um, to give you an example, in Europe, we have a division that does 3D metal printing at an industrial scale. Uh, we don't have that here in North America yet, unfortunately, but uh, my counterparts over there in Rico, I mean, they're literally dealing with car manufacturers or other folks in heavy industries where metal 3D printing is a reality. And Rico is actually, you know, putting out these huge machines that can actually produce pieces that can survive inside a combustion engine or inside a moving vehicle. Uh, so it's amazing. So yes, we have this IT services division as well. Uh, we have other divisions that do workflow management. So they're developing and putting solutions out there, electronic you know, software applications that basically help drive, I'd say a lot of the legacy fat out of uh, businesses. And most of these businesses, yes, are kind of like older businesses, mature ones that have been established for a while. Uh, I think you and I, with a lot of the entrepreneurs and the startups that we speak to, these guys are digital natives, which is a good thing. I enjoy speaking to them. Uh, and one example that I've noticed is uh, there was this company that I'm dealing with. They're in the cannabis space. And their vice president of investor relations, uh, she's in her, I'd say, mid to late 30s. Okay. And I remember one day I was emailing her. And then uh, I, I called her the next day and I'm like, hey, did you actually get the email that I sent over the proposal that you asked for? And she's like, no, I didn't sell. And I'm like, OK, I'm sorry. Do you want me to resend it? She's like, no, no, no. She's like, I don't check my email at all. And I'm like, all right, what's the best? And I was keeping a straight face. I'm like, what's the best way to contact with you? And she's like, well, don't you do text messaging? You know, just text me. And she said it so nonchalantly, like I was, you know, her next door neighbor or perhaps a distant cousin or a friend. She's like, just text me, you know, she's like, and, and then, and then I, I paused a little bit and she's like, Sal, I mean, I'm sorry, it's, it's 2021. I don't check my emails. She's just like that, you know? And I mean, here at Rico and, and in my career, I've been used to kind of using email as a formal channel for communication. It's in writing, it, it's, you know, there's a paper trail. Uh, but she was like, no, just text me, I'm good. You know, whatever you want to give me. So, and I, and I went through a little bit. I'm like, okay, even if it's financial data, you know, anything like that. She's like, yeah, yeah, just text me. She's like, I'll respond to you right away. Uh, but I mean, uh, if you email me, it's going to take me a day or two. 
And I can, I can tell you there's other companies that I can think of right now as well. In fact, some of my counterparts uh, here at Rico Canada in certain geographies around Canada, they tell me flat out, they're like, Sal, when I talk to the same main decision makers at my client companies, <laughs> they're like, I don't email them. I, I just send them a text message. Uh, so I think that's kind of, uh, it's a generational difference, definitely, I've noticed. You know, some of the younger guys uh, and girls out there in business, they grew up digital natives. They're, they're, they're texting all the time. So they're like, yep, I, I tell my business partners to text me as well. So getting back to the question, um, Rico is a very large company. Uh, I would say we're a technology company. Uh, again, I work in the IT services division. Uh, it is a global division of Rico. So we have Rico IT Services Europe. It's in the States and Canada. It's in other geographies around the world as well. Uh, and it serves us well in case we have any large customers, enterprise customers that are, might be headquartered in the States or Europe and they want you know, one company, one entity, one partner to take care of all of their branch and satellite locations wherever they may be located around the world. So we have that capacity and capability to, to, to bring yeah. that to the table. Um, yeah, you, you, you threw in so much in there. I, I'm just trying to break that down. So, <laughs> it's tough. So uh, we're talking about first uh, Rico. Rico is a Japanese uh, company, right? Like it's a multinational from Japan. It is. And uh, I, one of my uh, insights into this is, Definitely the culture, even me as an outsider, uh, dealing with you and uh, people mm -hmm. at Rico, notice the cultural difference immediately. Um, first of all, mm -hmm. you guys are so like on point with your emails. Uh, <laughs> like <laughs> okay. uh, no matter, like- We like, like to know, be. Like, I, I've dealt with so many different types of uh, companies and uh, like I, I, I mm -hmm. noticed right away how s straight up uh, you guys are with answering emails and getting back to people on time. And if you don't even have an answer, you'll at least respond back saying like, got this, you know, we're working on it moving forward, right? And uh, and, and also the culture, one of the things you, you mentioned as well is like Rico, is, uh, you know, uh, being a client of ours, um, they want relationships. They want long-term relationships. They want to form relationships with companies. Yeah. Uh, the, and uh, with uh, um, uh, the, the companies that we have introduced to Rico, Right. Uh, same thing. It's like startups mm -hmm. uh, go through this evolutionary period where uh, some of the things that they they need that are ready for it yet. Um, just like uh, going through a, me a mm -hmm. mentorship program or going an accelerator uh, partnerships, industrial partnerships, I think, is the un the untalked about um, secret sauce that's been uh, really funneling innovation where large companies kind of partner mm -hmm. with smaller firms. Uh, in order to do uh, do new things, mm -hmm. and, and Rico's been doing this for like what sixty years, quietly behind the scenes, working with smaller smaller firms, uh, oftentimes funding them, oftentimes buying their services early and seeing how they perform, uh, and sometimes mm -hmm. even acquiring them. Um, can you right? Can yeah, you talk a little absolutely. bit more about uh, uh, Rico's uh, you know uh, in, uh, your history with uh, innovation or like smaller companies? How you deal with them? That is a huge topic, um, specifically in the area of innovation. And, and and fair warning, Ravi, in advance, I will not be able to do this topic and this question justice. Um, in the areas of innovation, RICO over the years and decades does have several patents. There's always something that we were thinking of in our laboratories, whether in Japan or the States, Europe, anywhere else, China. And, uh, you know, we decided to, hey, this is an amazing workflow process or something technology that we invented and we decided to patent it actually. Um, in Canada, in the States, abroad, in Europe, in Japan, we have won numerous awards and patents for innovation. Uh, so definitely that is part of our DNA. 
I mean, I see it every day when I'm talking with my RICO counterparts across North America. These are some of the brightest minds that I've had the pleasure of working with. Uh, and it's amazing the ideas that they bring to the table. And in some ways, I feel like, you know, you've got all these smaller startups, if you will, within RICO. Because these are guys that are thinking about how to tackle real world problems. And they're actually coming at it very similar to how uh, businesses are. Um, another angle that I want to mention here is you had mentioned, you know, Rico sometimes does acquire smaller businesses. Uh, even where I work right now, Rico IT services, and now within Canada, the way we grew is we, we had a, an IT services division for a long time. I'd say about probably, I think, uh, gosh, uh, you know, I'd say probably a decade and a half or more, but we were always looking out for other companies in the same space. And one of them was called Graycon. Uh, they were headquartered in Calgary. Uh, so we, you know, our leadership knew theirs for a while and, and so on. And we decided to acquire them. I think it was back in, I think, 2015. And of course, there was a, you know, a couple of years of integration and merging them in. Uh, we have a lot of former Graycon uh, team members still on our team here at Rico, and they've added a lot of value with the experience that they brought. Uh, but they started in, the, I think, the late 80s and 89 or so, and they were just a small startup back then, you know, talking to companies and saying, look, here's what we do on the IT side of things, and we can do it for you. Here's what we're innovating in. And uh, they kept growing, and eventually we decided it was a right fit for, you know, uh, Rico, uh, Rico Canada to be specific, and we acquired them, and we've been in the process of kind of merging them into uh, the company. Um, myself included, I mean, I've had the pleasure of working with a lot of startups, some again that you referred me to. Uh, I've worked at startups in the past as well, so I'm kind of familiar with the growth cycle, some of the pressures that they grow, go through. And I use that experience to inform my conversations when I'm talking to uh, other startups right now. Is I'm like, hey, look, this is what I see happening right now. This is what was happening 10 years ago. Here are some technological capabilities uh, and, and, and new business innovations, for example, that are available now to you that weren't available to me, at least when I was working at a startup 10 years ago, you know? Uh, so that kind of advice I love talking about because my main goal is, you know, I think it's important for my clients and any any stakeholders that I talk to, Ravi, it's, it's also it's important to understand, you know what, this person that I'm dealing with, what drives them, right? Why are they doing this? And what I've always told all my clients, even my family, my coworkers is, you've heard the old story of if you give a man a fish, he'll eat for a day, right? But if you teach a man how to fish, then he'll eat for life. So me personally, you know, when I, when I put my head down on the pillow at night, what I think about is, did I help someone out there who perhaps is not very tech savvy, right? Or maybe they don't have as much business acumen, perhaps, uh, or maybe they don't have as much insight into a particular industry, whatever it may be. What did I do to help them today with some kind of knowledge or experience or skill or some value that they can carry forward now for the rest of their professional or personal life, right? Uh, so how did that help them? So I do that all the time. I mean, I, I talk to startup founders. I talk to folks in administration or finance or operations who... You know, IT, IT sometimes scares them. Technology scares them sometimes, you know. They hesitate talking about it because, and I get it, sometimes the, f the fear is, hey, I don't want to sound like a really dumb person. I don't know what I'm talking about, you know. I don't want to put my foot in my mouth. And I, I, I have all, I've, I've, I've been in that same seat before myself. And I take the time to talk to 
all business leaders, whether you're a startup founder or whether you're someone working in administrations, even the receptionist, I don't care, it doesn't matter. I take the time to explain to them, like, here's what the technology is. I break it down for them. So it becomes something that's no longer scary. I'm like, here's how it works. You know, here's what it does. Here's what it doesn't do. Here's what your expectations should be with this piece of technology. And uh, if you have any questions or concerns, feel free to give me a call back. That's how I typically end all my calls. It doesn't matter whether they're a client or not. Um, cool. So, I mean, part of this job, it seems like it's perfect for you because, you know, you love technology and you love simplifying it. And uh, you talked about a history of, of being there. So can you talk to us a little bit about a few projects you've done? Like, um, how has, like, you know, what, what are things in Rico that, uh, yeah, that can be utilized by startups? Like, how can, how, how do the industrial partnerships work? Okay, well, I'll give you an example of uh, one startup. Uh, they have their founders actually in Calgary and uh, some in Montreal. This wasn't through you guys. It was another startup that I was working with. Uh, they're working in the energy sector. So uh, they've got something amazing. I, I can't give it away, but it's something amazing that they really do in the space of solar panels kind of driving better electricity uh, usage from the solar panels and, and obviously helping uh, consumers who install those panels kind of understand exactly what they're using, right? So they, they make an app as well that is downloaded on the phone. Um, you know, these guys, when I started talking to them, uh, I was talking to one of their employees who is effectively, I'd say, their VP of finance. Um, you know, it was only, I think, four people at that time, the startup, three founders, plus uh, the finance executive. And uh, they were uncertain about what to do for their own internal IT leadership. Do we hire, you know, an IT director, an IT manager, or even a C-level CIO, CTO? Is that something that we should be looking at? Because these guys, they do have, I would say, fairly large expansion plans. I mean, they're located here in Canada, but they have plans to expand across North America, into Latin America, into South America over the next two or three years. Uh, during our initial conversations with them, I mean, it was under NDA, and they were comfortable sharing with us what their revenue forecasts were, for example. And they're like, we need to make sure that our technology technology can support this kind of business growth, right? Uh, so that's what our first aim is to understand, Mr. Customer, what is your business focusing on over the next two to three years? Do you have an IT roadmap? If you don't have one, I mean, you know, is it worthwhile for us to talk to and develop you about it, uh, develop it with you? So this, this startup specifically, what we helped them with was actually uh, getting them first floor and foremost into the cloud. You know, we wanted them to be agile. We didn't want them to kind of be dragged or held down by any kind of legacy structures when it comes to IT, whether it's on-premise hardware and software or whether it's just old ways of doing things. Uh, we wanted to tell them, hey, you guys need to be very agile and be able to move fast and break things. And so, again, a very simple way of doing that is making sure that, you know, you're, everything you're using right now, services on your specific endpoint is again, in the cloud. And I use that term very loosely and for any non-technical people that might be listening, uh, an example would be Microsoft 365. You know, you, you download it from Microsoft, it, it allows you to download the tr traditional Office suite, Word, Excel, and so on. It's using uh, Microsoft Teams. Uh, you've got things like OneDrive and SharePoint that are all built in, and they're all hosted on Microsoft servers or any other servers of, of, of its partners. You don't have to worry about setting up any kind of hardware in your specific office location, right? Um, protecting data, I find, for a lot of startups is also very important. You know, you have all this intellectual property, the IP of the founders, that's kind of 
being crystallized. It's coming out into company documents. These company documents are very valuable. I'd say they're the crown jewels of the company of any startup. Okay. It's, you took the idea that was in your head, you translated it into real world terms. You laid it down into whatever it was, a business plan, some kind of structure, some kind of process or workflow. And you have to protect that data because there's so many risks involved. You might have, for example, malicious actors out there who are after your intellectual property, to be honest, okay? Uh, and I don't wanna go too deep into that. Sometimes it's geopolitics and whatnot, but it's valuable information. How are you protecting it, okay? That's one example. Um, basic things. How are you protecting that data against everyday basic things like power outages or someone accidentally deleted a file, you know? Uh, or someone's uh, IT equipment, the laptop went kaput. I don't know, maybe your kids spilled coffee all over it. I don't know, whatever, right? How are you protecting that data? So that's one conversation area that I go into with a lot of founders is what have you done to protect your crown jewels? And a lot of times, to be honest, Ravi, um, a lot of founders haven't thought about it too much. They're like, oh yeah, Sal, I got it on a USB key. Oh uh, yeah, I keep it on my laptop and then I have one copy stored, you know, I don't know, in my Google Drive somewhere, for example. You know, so I kind of have to educate them on what the nuances are, uh, where it's easy to do that, when it's hard to do that, what might be some of the difficulties, some of the risks and costs down the road, if you still have your data stored in those spaces, and what are some of the best practices that I see other startups doing that you might want to adopt. So that's one thing that we did for this customer as well, is we help them kind of protect their data uh, far in advance before the company grows to like, you know, 30, 40 uh, employees. That's their target for this year, at least. Um, you know, and other things like for, we have a huge procurement division as well. So you don't want to waste time with procuring IT assets for your employees. You know, you want to have a partner that can get it done really quickly. Imaging, for example, make sure that all of your laptops that are being shipped out are imaged in advance the way you want your company uh, having them imaged. So that means all of the applications, all of the security policies that are going on the laptop, for example, uh, any kind of documentation that you already want on that laptop, it's there in advance. You're literally, the first day you have a new employee, employee number five or employee number 50, they open their laptop, they type in their username and password, and away they go. They don't have to waste time calling IT and saying, hey, I don't have access to this resource or uh, this application hasn't been set up yet, actually. you know, That's one thing. A third main area is, uh, and I think you and I have spoken about this before, uh, let's take, for example, you might have a startup that uh, you know, is working in the enterprise software space, okay? And uh, in those cases, you know, you've got experience in this and so do I. A lot of those startup guys, they're, 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 they're engineers, right? They're software engineers, you know, they, they, and they have experience or some of them might be biz dev guys, okay? They don't have the time or the resources to be on the phone with their initial customers when their initial customers who've implemented their software call them and say, hey, Ravi, uh, you know, I'm running into, uh, running into a small problem on your, on your software, right? How do I fix this? You know, so that's one area that Rico comes in is we have help desk services available that are available 24 seven to our customers in multiple languages. You know, you can call them at, I don't know, Christmas at 2 a.m. and you will have a live human being picking up. And our help desk actually supports any software out there as long as it is currently supported by the actual vendor. It's still under warranty. So if you know you have listeners out there that are creating, let's say, an enterprise software company, one thing they might want to think about that might help them be more agile and grow more faster is if you're selling your software to a large enterprise customer, how are you supporting the software now? 
if, if your enterprise customer's staff run into any problems, are they calling you and are they bogging you down? They're kind of weighing you down with support calls. And that means you don't have time to spend on more DevOps cycles. Well, how are you going to go out there and get new customers? How are you going to tweak your product to make it better for the market, right? So that's one area that I talk to startup founders about. I'm like, what can I do to help you guys scale faster? And if I see and I hear that they don't have the support piece in place, I raise red flags right away. I'm like, your business is at risk of actually collapsing because you guys will find really quickly that after one or two large customers, you guys are going to get a ton of incoming calls saying, hey, I need support on the software that you that you sold me, right? So I'd say those are some of the major areas that we help with help, uh, with, uh, with startups. But ultimately, Ravi, my focus is, hey, Mr. Customer, what is your business focused on, right? What can I do to help you to make sure that your technology strategy is aligned with your so business? So that, that's really interesting because that's a pr- huge problem that a company is scaling f- face into. A lot of times, especially B2B SaaS companies, uh, will like sell a, a whale of a client, you know, a, a great big client. You know, we had this happen to a, a company we were working yeah, with last year. Yeah. Uh, telling a telehealth solution to a school board. You know, it was about, uh, you know, uh, I think about $300,000 okay. in annual recurring revenue uh, and, uh, over a four-year period. Great deal, right? Well, the problem was the people who bought it were not the actual users. Mm-hmm. And the users, and there's a huge problem in, in the uptake of like, uh, okay. of like tra- transitioning over into that um, mm-hmm. and using the system. And their calls, the 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 the, the uh, I mean by calls like the the support ticket, just shot up to the roof, and suddenly uh, their developers were spending sixty mm-hmm. percent of their time just answering support tickets, helping people users not just onboard but get set up. And this is a highly scaling company, right? Wow. Going to rapid growth, trying to raise capital, just land a really good client, and there's more coming, right? Uh, there's more out there. So how could they do that with, with like you mm-hmm, know, the devs mm-hmm. all focused on uh, this one main uh, this one uh, large client, and I was thinking about this problem and you know Rico would have been a great solution for this company at that time right like to come in uh, not even before they even come in to have that kind of solution put up in place where hey we this company you know we have this great technology that can go out uh, if we sell it to a large enough client they might even already be a client with Rico on the technical side uh, can you handle the support and even the the, the onboarding. Right, mm-hmm. um, maybe not the onboarding because it requires some specialized uh, instances, but at least the technical support. Um, uh, that is a huge uh, uh, win for small companies because after the 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 client success side of sales is a deadly game, you know, especially if the client is a big whale with, with like a lot of stakeholders with a lot of users involved. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I'm curious. I mean, uh, you're talking about this cl- uh, this company that you're working with. So when they were talking to their enterprise client, the school board, uh, did the school board not ask and say, hey, uh, if we buy this software package from mm-hmm. you, how no, are you supporting the it? Did they, support. did they not ask that question? As far right, as you like, know. So that's in the in the contract was like guaranteed support within okay. this much time. Um, right. So these want to be known that are taken care of. They don't really care about mm-hmm. what the support mechanism was. Right. Uh, so when when they were going, when they were talking about that guaranteed support, and that's an example of something that we actually specialize in because we work with SLAs, service level agreements, right? So we have actual written commitments that, hey, this is how fast the average time is going to be for us to pick up the phone call, respond, you know, and address the problem. Did they 
have that in writing and discussion with their enterprise. And I know I'm going deep actually, but this is one of the things that I geek out on I would actually. So I want to know, did that enterprise client so actually this COVID times. force so the this startup board, to commit uh, to? I need a telehealth solution uh, in order to yeah. um, r- remote work their, their health network staff. Right, they're, they're from their psychologists to their school nurses, all mm-hmm. that kind of things. In order to close down about 256 schools, they needed a, uh, they, the only point of entry that the, the schools had to the students to the health wow. uh, network was uh, in person. So this solution was needed ASAP. So it's an expedited deal. I think in a regular sentence, a buyer like a school board will go through a much more hectic process. Uh, you know, like a much more um, a much more thorough uh, vetting process. And ask for things like that, but uh, and and during those times, like mm-hmm. having a partner such as Rico could be would, would be helpful, and that's why we started our relationship working together, right? Where I'm like, okay, we talk to companies all the time. A lot of companies might experience, especially this particular pain point. How could we introduce them to you, uh, right? And 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 create create this funnel yeah. of uh, funnel of co-creation, right? Um, so what we're particularly interested in is industrial partnerships, right? So all these companies are always struggling to raise money, raise money, go, go get money from investors. But truly, like there's a whole uh, industry yeah. around monetizing on IP. If you have a great product, if you have a great service that you can deliver on, um, there are other channels that you can develop mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. actually monetize rather than just trying to raise money to scale right off the bat. And uh, I think Rico mm-hmm. definitely offers one channel there, which is if you have a product that can, that can be utilized by large clients, especially, uh, you, you know, Rico would be there to help support that that project, um, and I think that's very valuable. You know, this this raises a good point. You just reminded me one of the challenges that I see startups go through this challenge, but so do even some slightly larger companies. They're a little bit more established, mid sizes. I don't want to say they're trying to reinvent the wheel. But I'll give an example. They're they're trying to do things that they're not good at. So you have core competencies. You know, whether you're a startup or you're a mature established company, you know, you as an organization, you exist because there is something that you do really well. And your customers know that about you. And that's what they like about you. Okay. But there's other things in running an organization that you don't do really well. And you don't want to throw good money after bad trying to fix those things that you don't do really well. So when I talk to non-technical leaders, one example that I throw out the Ravi is, hey, Mr. Customer, tell me how you drink your water. And initially I get kind of like, you know, puzzled looks and whatnot, but I'm like, you probably turn on a tap, right? And they're like, yeah, that's what I do. I just turn on tap. And, you know, some folks, you know, they, they want to buy Perrier or they want to buy bottled water, whatever the case may be. But the point is, you've got that water coming from a resource such as your local utility. And I asked them, help me understand why don't you just go out to your backyard and dig a well? And of course, I get the puzzled looks. And eventually, you know, everyone understands, Sal, that would be really stupid. I mean, it would be a waste of time and money. You know, I mean, I can get clean water from the tap. We're in Canada. You know, when I lived in the States, by the way, that was a different story. When I was in Texas, I'd open the water tap and there'd be brown water coming out because the pipes were so rusted across the city, right? This is in Dallas, Dallas Irving. But that's an example that I give. I'm like, you understand it doesn't make sense to go into your backyard and dig a well, because you can turn on your tap or you can go to Walmart and buy bottled water, whatever you prefer. So nobody thinks about digging a well. Or for example, Mr. Customer, you don't go into your garage and have a diesel generator that you're pouring money and fuel into, literally, just to run the lights in your house. 
So on the IT side of things, why are you trying to do certain IT things yourself and paying more money when you could have a larger utility provider, I want to say, or a utility partner do the same thing more efficiently for a lot less, right? So that's what I try to try to help my customers understand is running your business is like running a vessel or even maintaining a house. There are certain things that you don't want to do yourself. Air Canada runs its airplanes, but they're not actually making the airplanes. They're not making the physical seats that are in their planes, right? They're just buying it from whoever, Boeing or Airbus or whatever, et cetera, right? It doesn't make sense to kind of go out there and reinvent some stuff that you think should be done internally when you have these utility partners out there that can do that a lot better. So that's when I noticed the lights going off uh, you know, above really the heads of a lot of founders. Like, hey, yeah, you know um, what? I never thought about it that, that way. One of the things that trends that we're following is um, how innovation is changing. Um, you know, currently we live in this uh, idea of open innovation where mm -hmm. all the different stakeholders are involved in um, sharing the cost of innovation. Um, you know, so uh, government plays its role, um, uh, uh, multinationals yeah. like your, your companies, uh, your company plays a role, um, community events play a role, like all these different things come into effect. But we're going to this place of like uh, of, uh, distributed innovation where like different play, different player stakeholders are involved in the creation of the IP, right? Not necessarily mm -hmm. sharing the cost of the creation of it. So um, it, it follows this trend okay. by uh, uh, predicted by uh, Peter Drucker. Um, he wrote uh, he wrote this uh, book, uh, The Nature of the Firm, back in like the, I think sixties, seventies. Yep. And in this in this idea, it talked about why companies exist. Mm -hmm. Like, why do you hire people and put them inside a company? Why do you uh, put the, those people into a particular office building or into a particular a particular place? Like, why not contract individuals, right? And I talked about like these these. Uh, uh, these uh, these points of friction where like it's easier to just hire people internally uh, and even if they're not working you know you hire you're paying them forty hours a week even the people are only productive like eight hours of that uh, that week right like truly it's better to just pay them in those lump crowns and have them <laughs> at need because that's true that's uh, true you know, yep. it's it's it, it, it do you, it's less risk for an organization you can put them into your organization you can work on their your environment legally they you know everything they do there is owned by you there's a lot of protections you can have it's a de-risk kind of a calculation whereas when you contract out there's other uh, cons to that where uh, the, the, there's IP theft there's uh, like you know there's things like you can't control when they work or how <clears> they work you lose control but he talked about how when mechanisms come into effect that allows for this kind of mm -hmm. uh, this collaboration to happen uh, very frictionlessly, like without contracts being sent back and forth and things like that, like the nature of the firm will shrink, where smaller mm -hmm. and smaller groups can contract with mm -hmm. uh, other people to fill different purposes. So that that's true. Rather than you know building out your own finance department or your own engineering team yep. or your own uh, sales department or marketing firm. Right. Just like you don't hire your own in-house legal counsel. Right. You, you hire a, a contract, a, a contract, a legal firm. You contract out different parts of your business mm -hmm. to a multi-stakeholder community. Right. And uh, there's a mm -hmm. um, there's a great team we we're talking to uh, about this. Right. About distributive uh, innovation, but also how distributed teams are operated in. It's like how a multi-stakeholder environment can build IP now. Right. So imagine mm -hmm. like what uh, like a large company like Rico can do utilizing all the resources and, um, and, and with all that, working with like almost like a swarm of bees, these tiny, tiny problem-solving units, uh, these tiny, tiny experiments, which are startups, right? And picking pick and choosing, it's like, hey, we can deploy this here, we can deploy this there, and utilize the infrastructure to deploy uh, deploy those products. And those companies can then, you know, 
build uh, build teams of uh, you know uh, support structure with agencies and supply chains with other agencies and other providers to fulfill. And together, this, the, the multi-stakeholder unit is almost created almost instantly as needed to fulfill a product, a particular problem or, or, or serve a particular purpose. And that kind of plug-and-play kind of reality, I think it we're a little, a little off about, but there's a few companies uh, working on this. Um, uh, one project I, 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 I really love and been, been watching for about three or four years now is Colony.io. Uh, it's a blockchain solution that allows companies like form and co-create uh, instantaneously. That takes care of mm-hmm. like they uses smart contracts instead of normal contracts. It's like programmable contracts, allowing people to 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 work across organizations easier. Yep. So you know how. So yep. what I'm interested in seeing is like how you know companies and innovation mm-hmm. and and IP and, and all those kind of things kind of change as mechanisms for creating companies and 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 sharing um, ideas uh, changes. Well, one of the things that Rico does to help facilitate that is you you mentioned, you know, sometimes there's different points of friction and, you know, in anything that you think about, and I'll use YouTube as an example, just as an easy example that I think a lot of people don't understand is why is it that it's so easy to spend so many hours sometimes on YouTube? It's because they've removed a lot of the points of friction in the process. You know, the playlist, the suggested playlist is already there on the side of your screen or if you swipe up from the bottom of your phone window, it's right there, right? Um, having something going on loop is very easy to do. The red button saying play, it's very easy to do. Having autoplay enabled, for example, when you reach the end of the video, it's very easy to do. So people don't find it, there's not a lot of friction inside the YouTube website or the ecosystem right to to to, to figure out what, what do i want to watch next and in a way they compete with netflix to be honest right so one of the things that rico does to remove friction from the internal processes of companies is we actually analyze the workflow you know what are you guys getting bogged down in and and, and again it doesn't matter what the company does what industry they're in but what we want to do is and i, and I use the word before fat is we want to find where the fat is which is weighing you guys down, both intellectually, financially, operationally, and cut it out. You know, there are certain processes that we've found that in order to enable innovation, we've been able to cut them out of organizations and we've reduced workflow times that previously took three to four weeks and we've cut them down to literally a day or two. You know, a very simple, easy to understand example would be, and and this is related to the pandemic, um, and I think a lot of people have already heard of this, is DocuSign, okay? Just the ability to sign, you know, uh, documents and contracts electronically. At the beginning of the pandemic, we had tons of customers, you know, in finance, in legal, tons of space, real estate, who didn't really have any kind of electronic signature solution implemented. And we had to point out to them that now with your distributed workforce, everybody working from home, you're able to hire talent wherever you want. It's not restricted to the local geography, right? So if you guys were, you know, headquartered in Toronto, well, you can go hire someone in Vancouver if you want, or someone on the East Coast in the Maritimes or someone in LA, it doesn't matter. But how are you getting ideas across the company? How are you getting things signed? How are you getting contracts in front of your customers signed? You're not doing it the old way. You're telling customers, hey, I'm going to email you this contract, print it out, sign it. If you're a bank or a mortgage company or a credit union, you're not telling your customers to come into the branch because you can't, the branches are closed right? Because of the pandemic. So that's an example of innovation that we helped where formerly a process might have taken two to three weeks 
just to sign, let's say, for example, the mortgage documents for a house to keep it really simple. Now you're signing it literally within a few hours or a day at the most, right? Because you're sending it to the client. It's electronically executable. You know, it, it, the electronic signature does stand up at, uh, under in a court if need be. Uh, it's traceable, it's trackable, and so on. And it leaves the company a lot more time and resources to devote, hey, what can we do to help our community or sorry, our, our company grow to where it should be beyond the pandemic? So now uh, what I've found is it, it's 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 what I would say is Rico helps you get that breathing space, right? We, we, we point out that, hey, here's where there is certain friction. We can remove some of that friction. And now you'll find there's a lot of breathing space for you to sit back and think about, hey, what could my company be doing next? Right. The pandemic has caused a lot of people to innovate really quickly. I love using the example of ghost kitchens. You know, these are restaurants that they're struggling. They're like, oh, my God, we're always used to having foot traffic coming in the door. And now they're like, we're completely shut down. We can't get foot traffic in here. So they're like, you know what? I'm going to partner with folks like Uber, skip the dishes, whatever, and just get my my food out the door really quickly. Have the kitchen going 24 seven you know, different rotational shifts. And there are some customers out there in, in yeah. the restaurant um, space that are actually doing fairly changes, well now, uh, that even though they have zero foot traffic. Right? Like there's a lot of, lot of shifts. Oh gosh, there's tons, there's tons, there's tons. And that's one of the things that I love doing just by myself is sitting down with customers again across industries. I love kind of disseminating and helping them understand, hey, here's what someone in the same industry in another city or in another province is doing. OK, I don't take names, obviously, but I tell them, I'm like, look, this customer works in this space that's similar to yours. Here's what they did to kind of recoup that lost revenue because they couldn't have the physical foot traffic, for example. Why don't you try something similar? And a lot of times, you know, I find entrepreneurs, small business owners, medium business owners, they just never thought about it before. And the reason why is, again, because you never had a situation like the pandemic forcing everybody to sit at home. So I, I like taking a look at the silver lining in a cloud. Pandemic, obviously, this COVID-19 problem is a huge cloud. The external economic environment, Ravi, has impacted all companies, even Rico, right? We've lost a lot of revenue. Think about it. We, we make printers. You know, you got to be in the office to use that big fat printer, right? And if you're not in the office... Uh, we we had situations where customers were calling us at the beginning of the pandemic saying, hey, Sal, listen, uh, I'm just not using this printer anymore, and I don't know when I'm going to be able to back in the office. Can you guys do something about the lease that you, you know, we're paying everything <laughs> on a monthly or on a quarterly basis uh, from? We had lots of those calls. Bless you, Gesundheit. So that, I love that. I love the pandemic has kind of driven a lot of those new conversations, again, whether with startups or not. And I'm like, hey, everything has changed. How do you t pivot and adapt to this new mm -hmm. scenario, which parts yeah. of it might so, be with uh, us for the foreseeable future. Like a work from home, like, for are example. you guys going to be working from home indefinitely now? Are you, are you... Oh my God. <laughs> um, so I'm in business development. What is it now? You know, we're in the month of June. Um, I've been working from my home office since March of last year, nonstop. Um, you know, uh, uh, we've adapted by hosting all of our customer meetings 100% remotely, okay, um, through Microsoft Teams. Uh, that's our preferred method. Uh, all of our contracts are signed often digitally as well. So, I mean, in Canada, I think we are one of the largest implementers of, for example, DocuSign, right? Um, that's, that's definitely increased our agility, and we found customers have responded favorably. 
we're not we're not seeing customers saying, Sal, I got I got to see you in my office like it was in the old days. People have adapted and this new method of communication, I don't want to say it's new because people have been doing video conferencing for a long time, obviously, uh, you know, back in the days of WebEx or Skype or whatnot, uh, go to meetings and so on. But people have adapted to doing it on a broader basis. People that weren't tech savvy, they're much more comfortable now getting on a Zoom call, playing around with it, getting on a Teams call, whatever the case may be, and getting business done moving forward. So for me, um, it's helped me immensely because now I have a lot more time to have real business conversations with more customers, conversations that matter. I'm not stuck on the 401 on the highway. I'm not stuck on the DVP. That's probably the biggest benefit for me. And that benefit is extended now to clients. You know, Ravi, if I'm not stuck on the 401, if I'm not stuck in highway, Toronto's traffic is notorious for being crazy. You know, to drive some people to kind of want to go home and never uh, step foot on the highway again. That's time now that I get to spend with other customers talking about their business problems, right? That is also, and, and not to neglect my family, my wife and my, my two daughters, I get to spend more time with them as well, actually. Uh, so I think I, I love it, you know? Uh, sure, I don't like the fact that I don't get to see my coworkers, my colleagues. If we're talking about innovation and ideas, I have to admit that if I'm sitting in a room at the office with four or five other people, the ideas flow a lot more organically and a lot faster, for sure. That face-to-face -face interaction matters. It matters to me. And I find that, you know, I've thought about it a lot when I was doing 15, 20 years ago when I was working at other companies like Bell, for example. Definitely when you're sitting in a room with other folks, there's so many more forms of communication that don't necessarily translate very well on things like Zoom or Teams, you know? You don't always get to see someone kind of, let's say, kicking their feet. They're thinking about an idea, right? And then all of a sudden they stop kicking their feet and you know, something just went off in their head. If you're sitting in the room with them, you're like, Ravi, what are you thinking about? You know, I, I, I need, I noticed that shift in your body language, but if you're on teams and let's just say for the sake of argument, and I'm not making fun of the ladies here, but it does happen. A lot of my female coworkers don't like turning on the camera because they're like, Hey, you know, my hair isn't done. I don't have my makeup on. I'm like the guys, we, we tease them all the time. We're like, okay, whatever. But I'm a guy, I flip on the camera. I'm like, whatever. Okay. But if you have your camera off, yeah. You are, and I'm not saying this is necessarily a bad thing, but you're depriving me of a form of communication. I can't see your face. I can't see your facial expressions. I can't see your body language, your hand gestures, right? That's an important form of communication. So that's probably the biggest thing that I miss, you know, working in person with my coworkers is I can't see them in the mm -hmm. office and I got to either be on a call with them, audio only, or at most, you know, a video. But other than that, I mean, it's given me a lot of time to spend uh, much more valuable, to, to, to have much more valuable conversations with the businesses that I support and help them get through the pandemic and learn to innovate, work their way through this problem of the COVID-19 lockdown. And then I'm going to figure out what happens next. Once we're out of this pandemic, how are you going to be prepared for the next big problem that comes around? And a lot of times, and this is where my artistic and creativity background comes in, a lot of times customers are like, Sal, I don't know. Can you help me understand, you know, what might, what might come around the corner? What's coming out of left field? I have fun with that question. I, I put out the most harebrained ideas ever. I'm like, what if this happened, you know? And they're like, no, I don't think that would ever happen. I don't see that happening. And I'm like, okay, fine. Let's rewind to January, 2020. 
if I was to tell you that within two and a half, three months time, the entire world is going to be working from home and you need to make sure that all your VPNs are working properly. All of your staff are going to be work from home. IT security is going to be a huge issue. Would you believe me? I, I tell you, 99% of people would say, no, that's mm-hmm. not happening. I don't see a, you know, a worldwide virus forcing everybody to stay home. And yet two and a half months later, there we were. Everyone's all of a sudden being told to go work home, right? So I love throwing out ideas out there and I force customers to think, what if this happened? You know, a great area is IT security. A lot of businesses, Ravi, especially startups, especially young entrepreneurial companies, SMBs, the response that I get is, Sal, I'm too small. No one's going to attack me. What, why, what would someone gain from attacking me? And I'm like, that's not the right question. The right question is, Joe, whoever I'm talking to, how much is your data worth to you? I'll give you an example. I was talking to a small company. Um, they're about 40 or 50 employees. This is about two months ago. Uh, they do about $20 million in revenue per year. Uh, they've been hit by cybersecurity breaches multiple times over the past four or five years. And part of the reason why is because they didn't understand the impacts of paying the ransomware the first time they got hit, which was back in 2015. The demand, the demand was very small. It was 500 bucks Canadian. And the company president, he didn't think much about it. He's like, who are these guys? It's annoying. Just pay it, you know, get rid of it. So the attacks kept on increasing. And the last time they got majorly attacked, which was a ridiculous demand, it was about 500 Bitcoin. That was a demand. That was about a year and a half ago. And as of about two months ago, when I was dealing with the situation, Ravi, 500 Bitcoin, if it was being demanded now, about two months ago in 2021, on the market, on the street, it was worth about 33.7 million Canadian. It's insane. There's no way this company was going to pay that ransom. I mean, they do 20 million only per year. So that's an example of creative thinking where I talk to a business owner who's never had to experience this kind of problem before, this challenge. And I'm like, John, you're going to come into the office Monday morning. And whether your office is at home, like, you know, your, your office room or whether you have a commercial office, I don't care. You go to work on Monday morning and you cannot access your information. Your company is frozen. Your finance secretary is calling you saying there's a ton of bills that have to be paid. You've got your vendors and suppliers beating the door down saying, hey, it's been over 30 days. We got to slap on late fees. What do you do? Who do you call? What is your backup and disaster recovery plan? What does it look like? And to be honest, uh, from the vast majority of small business owners, founders, entrepreneurs, I get just dead silence on the call. And I want them to think about it. I'm like, you are living through COVID-19 right now. It has caused all these challenges that you have adapted to, by the way. And it's a credit to human ingenuity, human perseverance that we, as, as sentient creatures, we're like that. We're like, okay, we've got a problem. Let's put our heads together, figure it out. So I tell them, I'm like, Joe, you have done this before. You've dealt with COVID-19. It was a major, almost existential threat. You've dealt with it. Here's another existential threat. What happens if you can't access your data anymore? And your attackers, by the way, they, they're really good with the, your, your, your finances. They know how much revenue you're losing every day. If you're a $20 million business, do the math, Ravi. You're, you're making about 75 grand a day, your company, okay? I'm going to ask you for a ransomware demand of, oh, let's say 150 grand. That's two days worth of downtime, let's say. 
And I know you're going to be, the gears are turning in your head. If you're the company owner, you're thinking, well, should I pay or should I tell them to screw off and I'm going to go try to restore from everything from my backups? Well, I'm two steps ahead of you because I've already gone inside your backups and deleted everything. Okay, because you weren't careful about that. You're going to try to get the cops involved. What are you going to do? Get, a, get, get some kind of remediation firm involved, cybersecurity firm? Well, okay, fine. You're going to have to pay them. It's gonna, there's no way you're going to get this done in two days. So you're going to lose that revenue. And by the time everything is said and done, you're going to have lost more than the ransomware demand itself. So I, I have founders and small business owners that I talk to, and they're like, well, what do I do? And I give them tips on best practices. And I tell them straight up, I'm like, you know what? You don't even need to come to Rico IT Services to get these recommendations implemented. If you have an existing IT vendor that you love, go talk to them. Tell them about what I just said. You know, I'll give an example, backups, okay? Are your backups immutable? You may not have heard of that term if you're not in technology. Basically what it means is, can someone come in and adjust or modify your backup, your data set, after it's been fixed, after the data has been backed up? If they can't do it, if your system doesn't allow it, then that means if you get attacked by some kind of you know, malicious attackers looking to encrypt your data and issue a ransomware demand, it means that when they get into your backups before they initiate their attack, they can't encrypt your backups. And that's just one way out of probably three or four that I can think off the top of my head of how you can protect your backup data so that it's not vulnerable to cybersecurity breaches, right? So that's an area where I love kind of um, getting customers, getting founders, getting small business owners to start thinking a little bit more creatively uh, about, hey, here's something that could come out of left field. And just like COVID-19, it might completely toss all my plans down the toilet. What am I going to do? How am I going to react? Yeah, no, I think, How am I going to preserve uh, my, my business? And, and there's tons of other examples that I can give, but uh, I'll, I'll stop yeah, there. I've heard of my end. So many companies, startups have been, uh, been targeted, you know, fresh out of just getting uh, fundraising. They're getting all these headlines and, uh, and all this stuff. Next thing, boom, uh, all the system is locked up. So having... And I know, and I know you deal with a lot of VCs and institutional funders. And you know, I, I got to ask you: Is this a priority for them? Do they, when they're, you know, they're they're going through all these pitch decks on a weekly basis? You know, some of these guys go through probably I think like ten or twenty of them in a day. You know, their teams, right? Different teams evaluating these pitches. Is this, as far as you know, a priority yeah, for a lot of the VCs? Like they they, they talk to the founders and they're like, okay, what are you doing is, to protect uh, your data in the event of these uh, doing a, a, these events? A technical debt kind of analysis. Uh, a cybersecurity threat analysis, almost uh, when making uh, making uh, investments. Um, you know, previously uh, most VCs, oh, wow. uh, VC firms okay. are, are run by uh, uh, run by like like finance people, right? They <laughs> they look at numbers, they and they make investments to that, and uh, they haven't done it before. But there's a new generation of VCs who are actually engineers, who are you know have have gone through the gambit, have gone through have have battle scars. They're previous, uh, they're serial entrepreneurs. And these new generations are leading a new type of uh, investing, which is much more due diligence, yeah. right? Um, so not just looking at numbers, not just looking at the people and, and, and making a bet, but mm -hmm. uh, looking at the technical debt. Uh, and uh, there's an even further level of, of, of VC now coming up. It's called, uh, like, we're calling it growth engines, which are VCs, VC plus services. So there are VC, yeah, so VC firms that, will give you money okay. as a buy-in, but uh, have a bunch of services, services. they've built out in order to take you. Uh, some of these can be sales and marketing resources. Some are technical services. Mm -hmm. 
um, right? And um, some of them are very automated. Um, one of the biggest ones in Canada that just made it is Georgian, uh, Georgian Ventures. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Georgian Ventures just completely rebranded themselves as a fintech company. They're no longer just a VC firm. They're a fintech company. So mm-hmm. you don't just get invested by them. Uh, your technology blends in with their technology and their system of APIs plug into your system and like helps you boost your company. And what's the reason? I mean, and I know we're running low on time right now, but what was the reason for that? Was it because Georgian or even perhaps other VCs realized that their investments, they weren't seeing the ROI that they wanted to see because perhaps they had invested, you know, in a startup that looked good on paper. Everything was great. You know, it, it had a great market to address, but perhaps they didn't take care of the technology and security side Happens. of things. And the company the got attacked. And unfortunately, two, two, three years ago, I don't know, went kaput, belly up, and the VC firms, or any uh, other funders lost, their, mo- they lost their money. So when um, uh, VC firms purchase a technolo- technology, Mm-hmm. Um, this was a package uh, from uh, you know from my uh, from an IT co- company I was working with mm-hmm. that would come in and verify if the technology actually does what it does. Does the algorithm do X, <laughs> right? Because because they're looking at it from a financial perspective. So they're making a technology bet. We as a technology company would come in and look under oh, the wow. hood yeah. and be like, does it okay. actually work? Um, and it was uh, it was a loss leader the company was selling, saying that hey, we would we would sell this to you at like you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, like a, like $99 a, a, an hour kind of fee rather than $399 mm-hmm. an hour the, like the, the going market rate for this was because by getting under the hood and seeing these companies, we can then sell technology services to them saying, hey, you just got your Series A level funded. Uh, you know, this is your technical debt. We can help you improve, uh, improve by this much, right? So they were using VC firms. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so VC firms are the strategy to come in because the VC firms just, just wanted somebody to go in and check mark so they give a technical wow, report. Wow, so, so that was your strategy. Their, yeah, the LPs. Hey, yeah, we checked into it. The technology does work. All this stuff, right? The, the, the report. The report here on it. Um, and in turn, we get to look under the hood. And it sold. I mean, we had like <laughs> $500 million VC firms. That's uh, cute. One $200 million VC firm uh, who bought into this. And it was surprising how much, uh, like, uh, how much the feedback was and how many times they used wow. the service. Right? Um, there's, there's a big need for this. So hundred percent, there was more of a need for money to be not just mm-hmm. money, but to be smart money. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so previously it used to be that angel investors uh, coming very early on to a company would come in and strategically work with the company. Yeah. Now, Georgian Ventures is a growth fund. I mean, they do series like C series B and later, right? Like they put in $20 million and above. Um, so they come in a very into mature startups. And even they want to kind of get into the, into the field of like de-risking them and give them more experience and giving them uh, give them more resources. So uh, uh, so there's a more uh, mm-hmm. I think what technology is enabling now is more smart money to enter the market, and I think it's a good thing. Thanks for telling me about this. I honestly didn't know they were doing that. I love the strategy, though. I mean, you know, coming in, doing their due diligence and figuring out, hey, you know, you've got all these yeah. uh, different gaps, awesome sell. these, uh, these risks great. that we uh, would have to take on if we were to invest uh, you as it is I right now. We'll do another episode, Here's why you need these services. Uh, the I love that. We love to bring guests back every six months.
I would love to. Honestly, I, I have so many different startups and small businesses that I currently awesome. work with so, right now that, that I would love to talk about, but we'd be yeah, sitting here for 10 hours, actually. So definitely, I look forward to having this same discussion perhaps in the future.